I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have, and we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do? A podcast about jobs and how people got them. Hi there. So yeah, this week we are joined by Imogen Napa. She's really excited. Uh, someone that I have inadvertently done some work with in the past, though she may not have known about it at the time. Uh, so really looking forward to having a good chat. Uh, so Imogen, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, really cool to have you on. Uh, Dean's on with us as well, so we've got both of us here today. And yeah, I think without further ado, the question we like to ask people when they first join us is, uh, when you were growing up, what did you want to be? I've just been thinking about this and trying to rack my brains, and people have asked me this before, and I really don't know. And I think it was actually quite a big thing, especially when I went into sixth form, that I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think there's such a big pressure at school that you have to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, you know, to this day, my dad says, you know, he still doesn't know what he wants to do. And he's like 60 plus, uh, and it, it can stop and change. Um, so I always knew I liked science. I always liked being outside. Uh, I always liked the research elements within school as well but truth be told I had no idea but I think that's allowed right there's this is part of the reason we wanted to start the podcast was this um this maybe traditional idea that you decide when you want to be and you become that and then that's your life done is um hopefully it was outdated a long time ago but yeah certainly isn't the the rule and yeah and it's interesting because I actually you're the first person I think that has just come out and said oh I didn't know um, but I think there are a lot of people out there in a really similar position. And so when I think back to what I wanted to be as a kid, I tend to think about the things that I wanted to be when I was a little kid rather yeah. than what I really wanted to be as I went through school. Because I definitely feel like I was in a similar position, maybe in college, thinking, I don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and what I found out is that it doesn't really matter what you chose in college. You can kind of carve, carve a path um, to wherever you want to go from there. So maybe for you, the question is better kind of, you said you enjoyed science. What was it in school that really uh, made you happy or that you enjoyed the most through academia or extracurricular activities? Uh, Again, um, science was just something that I just found really interesting. And I've always hated exams. I've never, you know, been one of those people that can thrive off them. But coursework and trying to answer potentially an unanswered question or gathering all of the evidence needed to answer something. That's something I, I enjoyed quite a lot. I've always been notoriously really bad at maths. My brain just doesn't work that way. I have to think really hard and have things explained to me again and again and again when some people can just get it really quickly. So I think the part of science I liked was just understanding how the world works and how we fell into that. But then by also 
finding out questions that I didn't know before and adding it to that. Did you do you have like a particular like a memory that stands out from school? I know I've got I've got one from a science lesson I can share later, but is there like a moment where in school you're like that was interesting or you remember that forever? <laughs> yeah, I was telling someone this the other day. For my AS level physics and my physics teacher will tell everyone I'm notoriously again not very good at physics why I ever did AS level physics I have no no idea I was never destined to succeed at it and one of the coursework modules that I did when everyone else was doing some proper clever stuff I decided to look at tea and tea bags and look at different temperatures you could put the tea bag in and then how (laughs) the different colors that would happen when the tea was coming out of the tea bag um, and even though it was, it was you know, not not very really, well, it is physicsy, but not traditionally what you would expect from like a textbook. I found it really interesting because it was science that actually mattered in my day to day life. Of how dark could I get some tea? You know, the perfect British tea to everyone's standard. Um, so yeah, that that sticks out in my mind quite a lot. <laughs> that is the most quintessentially British physics project ever. It's brilliant. <laughs> I, try, I have to dig it up somewhere. It must be on an old laptop. It was ridiculous. And I remember laughing with my physics teacher quite a lot about it. But it was interesting. I mean, I've seen quite fundamental about my tea and how it's done. I don't know if you've have you seen the TikTok video that came out of, made by a, a, a are you lady yeah. from the US? It's not okay. No. <laughs> it's just you not have to okay. You your research from back in school. I know. Gosh, it's, yeah, going to do full circle. I could do like a little paper on it or something. But you should, in this TikTok video, you shouldn't microwave your tea or the water. It's, that's just not the done thing. And I like my tea really dark, like really strong, so you can taste the tea. And that just looks like milk. It's it's an upsetting video. I don't recommend anyone to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, was, sorry, sorry, I was just slightly disturbed that that was the thing that got me most incredulous in the week. And obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that probably deserves my attention and, and anger more. But yeah, that was the <laughs> one that really got me furious. What's interesting for me in listening to that story is I know what you do now, Imogen. And so I feel like it, is really interesting. Almost you can draw some similarities in some different ways with kind of that piece of work that you did and what you do now somehow, like in in some vague connections. Um, But it's interesting that that was, you chose this thing that was a real life issue that stood out to me when you just said that. And you ran with it because it meant that it would give you something to think about as you then went about your daily life and made, made your tea and so on. So what did what happened from school? From secondary school, did you go to college and to university? Tell us about the path there. So I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to university. I knew I wanted to go to university and I wanted to study science, but I had no idea what in. And again, there was such a pressure to know what you wanted to do. So you're almost forcing yourself to be like, well, I like science and I liked biology. So I'm going to go and do biomedical science. Um, but truth be told, it's, it's kind of just the irrational thinking I was, was going to. Uh, I had no idea which university I wanted to go to. And I went to Lincoln University, which I love with my, all my heart. I had some amazing times there. Um, but I didn't really think about going there. Like, I wasn't <laughs> very prepared. I actually ended up going there because my dad really supports Lincoln City Football Club. We were at a football game watching a football match. There was an open day on the same day. I went, flicked through the prospectus, biomedical science, bish, bosh, bash, you know, done. And so then I was at Lincoln University studying biomedical science for three years. And uh, it was there that I got quite into surfing. Um, I've always grown up in the coast. So, you know, surfing and being around the sea is something that's close to my heart. And even though uh, I was doing a biomedical science degree, my supervisor in my dissertation realised that my dissertation was more focused on environmental science. So I was looking at antibiotics resistance uh, in different environments and sat me down and said, OK, what are you going to do next? Um, and I was like, I have no idea where I'm going. You know, my life, everyone just seems to understand what they want. I really like research. Um, but how are you meant to know what you want to research? And it was kind of blaring, you know, gazing me in my face just really obviously and my mum always told me, do what you're passionate in. 
and I guess it's so much easier said than done and he my supervisor made me do this whole mind map and write what I was really passionate in and it was all about the environment and surfing and did lots of beach cleans and volunteering for surfs against sewage so um the logical step was going into that kind of realm and looking at environmental science and pollution so then I did a master's in biotechnology uh and my supervisor for my dissertation was then the leader of this course and he helped mold the course to do more things about marine conservation and then that led me on to doing my PhD looking at plastic pollution in the sea and it was you know completely obvious I should always go there it just took me a really long time to figure out. You didn't grow up in the Lincoln area did you? No my dad did Um, he was from quite a military family so his dad was in the RAF Um, So it's always been like a second home. But I actually grew up in Clevedon, which is near Bristol. Uh, It's quite an old person town, which is lovely. Lots of retirement homes, uh, fish and chips, you know, pebble beaches, 2P machines. Um, But we lived quite close to the beach. So you just walk down the hill and then you can look over the estuary onto Wales. So being next to the beach has always been a big thing for me. When you talked about your supervisor just there, I think one thing that we've seen over all of the interviews that we've done so far is that there tends to be this kind of one person at some point somewhere that helps guide each of us to the kind of next thing. Do you think if you hadn't have had that supervisor and then they didn't end up running the course for your master's that you would have ended up in a similar place? Or would you have maybe carved out a slightly different journey? That's a really good question and I've never thought about that. I like to think I would always come on to it in some direction. Uh, My supervisor was just at a key time a very good person to open up the door and just show me what was obvious Um, because I had it all there on paper on this mind map about exactly what I wanted to do. I wish I kept it now and then uh, it, it just felt as soon as I had that conversation I just had this path. I was like okay I know what I'm passionate in and I know I can make it happen. I think I was just really naive before that. I thought uh, marine conservation and beach cleaning and looking at plastic pollution in the sea wasn't a research that I could do. I kind of naively thought maybe the charities did that or um, other organisations. I I stupidly didn't think you could research it. Uh, So something that I've really learned and I, I try and speak about a lot is if you find something that you're interested in you can you can research it there's there's no end to research um and that's really exciting even tea even you, tea yeah, yeah. <laughs> you speak at schools quite often don't you and speak to young young people yeah I, I really enjoy the outreach of science and you know I was never like a straight A star student at A level I was a bit lost trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I had this conception when I was in school that people do that do PhDs are insanely clever and you know so many people are and it's a it's a really long slog Um, but it doesn't mean that people can't do it and also if you're really interested in the science don't think that you can't do that either you can find your path or find a research group that is also interested in it and then surround yourself with those people so I'm really passionate about teaching people that they can get into research even if they don't think that of that caliber if that makes sense. Perception is such a big thing I mean when you were talking earlier about uh, you know not being good at maths and not being good at physics and these things I think both Dean and I are probably thinking knowing obviously what you've gone on to do I think that came as a surprise to us we're like oh well, we probably had the perception as well that being in the science field as you are, that that means it was all a smooth sail through academia. Um, and that's a really interesting message to get out there, isn't it, about find your passion and actually it's not, the route there is not as as you think it might be. Yeah, and in school, which is very important, and I completely agree with doing exams, and I I do think there should be more coursework-based things, but there's such a a pressure especially when you're like 16 or 18 the people are telling you that you need to go to university and you need to know what you're going to do for the rest of your life and you might be learning things and lessons that you can't really put into understanding in your day-to-day life um so I never I never considered myself doing a PhD ever I just never saw myself as that kind of person um you know I was 
kind of in the back talking with friends uh, in lessons, sometimes doing the homework on the bus just before I arrived at school. Uh, but once I found something that I was really passionate about, uh, and, you know, I, I do love researching it, even in the bleak days where you're going to bed at silly clock in the morning and you're doing loads of work and loads of lab work because you're passionate about it and you want to see a change and you can be part of that change. That's really, really rewarding. Can you tell us a bit more about what your doctorate involved? Um, I'm thinking maybe there are people listening that are thinking, I'm not the kind of person that would do a PhD either. <laughs> um, and maybe we can kind of demystify it a little bit for them. Yeah. So again, it was, as part of my supervisor for my master's, uh, the same supervisor that helped um, in my dissertation in my undergrad, uh, it came to the next point and he was like, what are you going to do next? And I was like, well, I'd like to carry on research and I'm really passionate about plastic pollution. I've got a few ideas in my head. Um, it's going to be quite difficult going from a non-marine science background, especially for fully funded PhDs because they are competitive. So what he helped me do is look on uh, the internet and find people with similar research interests and you keep nailing them down. And eventually I found someone called Richard Thompson, who's my now boss. And I sent him an email saying who I was. Uh, you know, I'm not from a traditional marine science background, but here's what I've done. Here's some of my ideas. He didn't reply for two to three months. He's notoriously a very <laughs> busy guy and uh, got a lot of emails. And then he rang me out the out of the blue and I think I was in the pub and he was like hi it's, it's Richard and I just had no idea who it was and then when, <laughs> when it clicked I was like oh my goodness he's rung back we started spouting these ideas and he invited me down to Plymouth and uh, I've been at Plymouth ever since and my PhD was looking at the sources of plastic into the marine environment there's so much amazing research and needed research looking at how problematic it is once it's in the environment but what really interests me is just learning how it gets there and through common items that we wouldn't typically always consider as pollution. Uh, so my first research piece was looking at uh, facial scrubs and microbeads and microbeads are tiny plastic particles that used to go in facial scrubs to get the dead skin, skin cells off. Uh, I used to use one I never even considered it would be plastic it just doesn't even you know click in your head um, so I was in the lab extracting all of these tiny microbeads for hours and hours and hours. Um, but the results were really interesting. And we found that three million could be in one bottle. So on the square on your hand, there could be up to 10,000. So you'd be washing your face with 10,000 plastic pieces. And they'd go down the drain, potentially through the sewage treatment works, and then potentially into the ocean. And then it was from that first research piece that I really got the bug for research. Uh, because it changed policy internationally, making microbeads banned. So it can show how some crazy hours just doing a little research project in the lab can really help change the world for the better. And what a phenomenal impact. It's mad to even believe that it would just be okay to put plastic in a face wash, right? Yeah. And to bring so much um, kind of publicity to that, I guess, to, in order to change policy is really powerful. Yeah, just... I don't think that the people originally putting plastic in facial scrubs are doing it to <laughs> be evil to the ocean. Probably quite cost effective. Yeah. Originally, they're probably thinking it was great to get the dead skin cells off. It, you know, if you can colour it, it looks really nice. You know, you can colour them blue or pink. Um, but then loads of companies started to do it. And then if you're washing your face with 10,000 microbeads that are potentially going down the drain... Yeah, every time you wash your face, that's a huge proportion of plastic that's just so small. How do you remove it? And it's completely not necessary because there's natural alternatives instead, like uh, uh, salt or sugar that you can use. Um, so it really opened my eyes that there's so many small steps that we can do that will have such a big impact. Uh, I think it's very easy to go and think, right, we need to change the biggest things that's going to make the biggest impact. But sometimes we just need to start small. And then that can get the wheels in motion for more change. So when you sort of, from picking little tiny bits of plastic out to get the information through to the policy change, I think that's quite an incredible trajectory as well from like the, the nitty gritty, quite literally, of that, that research through to the policy change. But when you got that first policy change then and the microbeads were, were you know, they were changing how they're doing it in product. At that point, did you already put your mind to like the next 
area that you wanted to look into? Yeah, I had already planned the what, the chapters in my PhD. So the microbeads was the first one. Um, and it was a slow burner, actually. We found, you know, like I said, the three million one bottle was completely not necessary. Uh, and it got a bit of media attention. And then it kind of died down. And then I was on my next experiment, which was looking at washing clothes. And then I remember going to uni one day and I had a few emails and a few tweets and suddenly it just blown up again. Um, I'm not sure why. Maybe a news story went out and then it kind of cannonballed. But from that day, it just went crazy. Uh, loads of people were talking about it, boycotting it. They were before, but there was just more umph for boycotting it. Uh, way more exposure. And from that exposure helped the, the policy change um, from our research being credited uh, in that. Um, so it wasn't quick. But it wasn't slow. I, I reckon we could have been faster as a nation, but I, I guess you can always be faster uh, in science and uh, getting policy changes through. Did you set that change as a goal when you first started that research? Or was the aim of the research really just to understand it better and that happened to be a side effect? I think for me, it was just to understand it better. As a, you know, a, a baby PhD researcher, um, just finding my feet of, you know, doing my own independent research. So the the policy change really was the icing on the cake. I I don't think I would have known how to do that by myself. I had a very good support network and a very good um, boss, Richard. Uh, he's got a lot of good links into uh, policymakers and, you know, the government. Um, so it helped me see the ladder of how that can happen and how I can now do that for myself. But originally, when I set out, it was all about just understanding how much was in one bottle. And then I thought through my voice and through social media and just spreading that to as many people as I can, then knowledge is power. Um, but now I've learned that knowledge is power. And then with knowledge, you can you can do other things such as policy change. So it's definitely it taught me a lot, that research project. Was it, yes, I mean, I'm, I kind of vaguely remember my wife switching out her scrubs at some point, I presume. It was probably around that exact time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I had to do the same. I remember having those scrubs, especially when I was like 16, 18. I just never considered it. I just probably thought it was something that was going to dissolve when it reached the water. I didn't think that there would be three million tiny bits in my facial scrub. And then you don't want to wash your face with plastic bits. And actually, it's really bad for your skin because I've heard that it can get in your pores. And then stay mm. in your pores, so then you're more likely to get spotty. So it's really a aesthetic aesthetically pleasing thing how long ago was that how long ago did that policy change happen depends which country I believe the UK officially came in and either late 2018 or early 2019 um but it's also how you interpret it so microbeads are definitely banned but now we need to be careful about glitter for example glitter can be just tiny bits of plastic and that that can be put in cosmetics as well so we just need to make sure that it's a quick win banning microbeads but there's many other elements that are intertwined into that that you know government and policymakers need to make sure that that's happening And so what's happened since then to now? What else have you been up to in that gap? Yeah, it feels like ages ago. Gosh, when did I start my PhD? 2015. Um, so then the next project was looking at washing clothes. Um, again, I was quite surprised. I, I never considered the clothes to be made out of plastic. Uh, I think the T-shirt that I'm wearing at the moment is polyester to prove a point. So 60% of the clothes that we get, especially with fast fashion, think of, um, you know, some fast fashion brands. Most of the clothes are going to be plastics. They're cheap and easy to make, like polyester, acrylic or natural synthetic blend. And when you wash your clothes in the washing machine and they're swishing and they're swirling about, tiny fibres can come off and go into the wastewater. And then like the microbeads potentially through the sewage treatment works and into the ocean. Um, and we wanted to do some research looking at different fabric types of how many fibres were coming off. 
And again, I was I was really shocked. It was a, a huge quantity. Originally, I was expecting it to be a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. Uh, and what we actually found out was for a typical clothes wash, up to 700,000 fibres can come off your clothes. Wow. And I told you before, originally, I'm not very good at maths. So I have to double check everything. I get my friends to double check everything. And when I was saying it's, when I first saw it as 700,000, I was like, that's just my math. Something's definitely wrong here. And I got a few of my friends in my office to check. And they're like, no, it's it's that number. And uh, it was just shocking, really. Every time that you wash your clothes, that amount of fibers can potentially come off them. And, like the microbees, they're just so small. But then what that led into is um, I got, <laughs> kind of got notoriously known as the person that was doing a lot of washing machine research and then I applied for a National Geographic grant which I was really excited to get with Sky Ocean Rescue and literally as of Saturday uh, so four days ago um, my paper got accepted uh, which I've done with Richard and Aaron who kind of built this washing machine lab for me and we've taken the research forward and rather than looking at how troublesome and negative plastic fibres are coming off our clothes. We wanted to look at the solution. We've been testing six different inventions that try and capture the fibres in the washing cycle. So hopefully in the next two weeks, I'll be able to share the results because there's some very interesting results on how they work and which is the most successful. I think I remember seeing a tweet of lots of washing machines that you put out at some point from your washing machine lab or reference to that. It's, it's, very, it's really, I mean, I, the just the there are lots of problems in the world that seem very distant and i think plastics in the ocean can feel like that when you know how could i possibly have any influence on it and i think those two bits obviously with facial scrub and clothes are things that bring it home in terms of not that you're necessarily causing it but definitely that there are actions you can take on a consumer level which can make it make a difference along the way um, but actually, I mean, there's the project, which I think might be next, but correct me if I'm wrong, is your sea to source project with National Geographic, which um, I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit more about. Um, but that bit there, did that lead out of these, the two projects you've done, which were kind of looking at facial scrubs and clothes? What was the jump to then, uh, when we start talking about sea to source, to kind of going to then what I would think was the next level or two above that. Yeah, you can, uh, my mum says you can never connect the dots going forwards, but you can always connect the dots going backwards. Um, true. So then after, that. Yeah, it's so true though. Um, after doing a lot of washing clothes, um, I then had some research out looking at biodegradable and compostable bags, put them in a variety of different environments. And the, the big story that we got from that was, that biodegradable bags that have been buried or put in the sea for three years could still hold a full bag of shopping afterwards. So it's opening our eyes about how we label things. And we're not saying that biodegradable compostable isn't the solution, but there is a solution in the right waste stream. And that's an industrial composter and that, not the natural environment. And there seems to be sometimes a bit of confusion um, with people thinking if it goes in the natural environment, it will break down. Uh, and then how did I get into the sea to source? Uh, I was invited to do a talk at National Geographic headquarters. Um, I had huge imposter syndrome. Um, <laughs> I think I was going into the third year of my PhD and I was sharing the stage with some scientists that I really admire. Um, Heather Coldway, Jenna Jamberg, my friend uh, Lily, uh, who's a storyteller. And we were all talking about our own research and we all just really hit it off um, a really inspiring group to be around. Um, and just to, can I, sorry to jump in there. Imposter syndrome is obviously something that comes up really often when we're having these conversations with people. And I'm wondering, uh, what do you, why, why did you feel that way? Do you think? Hmm. Um, it's definitely real imposter syndrome. I'd say I still have it. Um, I reckon everyone has it to some degree. I think we're both just, nodding, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you just, I think at that moment, why I had it, I was just on the stage with some scientists that I just really admire. I know that they've had a lot of research out. Um, you know, I read up on about them before I did the talk. Uh, so 
it's very easy to remove yourself and just focus on other people. Um, Do you think they had the same feeling? I don't think that they do or did, but speaking to them now as friends, I definitely know that they do, if that makes sense. Um, I think that's really key to people that feel this way. I, I think what you said is so true. I think everyone feels this to some level. They don't necessarily know what to call it or give it this name, imposter syndrome, but it's the feeling that uh, you're not good enough or that basically you're going to be found out to be a fraud and you don't really know what it is that you're talking about. And actually, when you start talking to people that you think could never have imposter syndrome because you're the one that looks up to them, uh, it turns out they do as well and they feel like they don't fit there. I think it's really, really interesting that you mentioned that because I'm listening to you thinking, no way, are you an imposter at that event? Um, like it's absolutely where you should have been and been talking and and yet that feeling like still comes through. Oh, I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. Um, I think actually I'd be more nervous if I have got rid of it. Um, maybe that means I've just got really cocky or arrogant, which you, you don't want to be. So I think it actually helps ground you and just makes you have a step back and realise what you have achieved and, you know, the teams that you're in and surrounding yourself with good people that think the same. That really helps. Uh, and anyone that says that they don't get a little bit nervous when they're doing a talk or public speaking, um, I think is a tiny bit lying, uh, even if it's just 0.1%. Um, I think it's good to get nervous because it shows that you really care and you want to get your story across and your research across. Uh, but then for the seat of sauce bit, me and Heather got talking, maybe a few gins were had, and she <laughs> said, would you like to be on this expedition team? And I was like, of course, that's like my absolute dream. Um, you know, I used to get National Geographic magazines when I was younger. And again, that just seemed like a completely different world. I'd never even would aim for that to be a job that I could have because I just, I just never would see how I could get there. Um, and then I was like, let's see how it pans out. Some things fall through. Um, you never know if it's going to happen. And then just before Christmas, I got a phone call and she said, are you still in? And I was like, yes. And then the rest is history, really. Um, I'm just writing up the results to a lot of the experiments that we've been doing on the trip now. So it's been a a, whirl, a crazy whirlwind two years uh, with a lot of research and a lot of research I still need to do because I haven't gotten the lab because of COVID, understandably. Um, but it was an incredible trip and I met some incredible scientists along the way. So Heather, who sort of was the person who said, would you like to come on this trip? What was her, how did the, the, the project get started? What was her involvement? And like, where did it first originate from? And actually, it's probably worth explaining a little bit about what the, the aim of the project was. Uh, I believe it came about because National Geographic hadn't done its own expedition in a number of years. And um, with the Planet of Plastic, their campaign that's been going ahead, um, they wanted to be at the forefront of making change. Uh, so Heather and Jenna were co-leads on it, which was really exciting because it was uh, two female co-leads, both with uh, you know relatively young children. So it's, it's quite inspiring to see how they were able to do that with their own lifestyles and crazy busy jobs alongside. Um, and then we chose the Ganges River because rivers are a major source of plastic pollution getting into the ocean imagine it like a conveyor belt and it was a good opportunity to look at a major river system that hadn't been studied before that goes over India and Bangladesh and we called it the source to sea trip sorry sea to source trip got that wrong where we literally went from sea all the way to source we started in Bangladesh where it met the ocean all the way up to the glacial source so we did it opposite of what you would expect and we had three teams. We had a land-based team, which was looking at litter on land, how it's getting from land into the river and looking at different waste management structures, uh, how is waste disposed of. We had a social economic team and that was looking at people's perceptions of plastic, how people feel that it should be dealt with, what communities feel like the solutions could be. Then we had the water team, which was what I was part of. And we were looking at plastic in the river and um, what I was specifically looking at is getting a 3D picture of where the microplastics going is it going out to sea is it going into the sediments 
uh, is there any microplastics in the air? So really just getting that whole 3D segment at each location as we went up the river. Um, and we did two trips. We did pre-monsoon and post-monsoon to look at seasonal effects. We've got a lot of research to write up, but the most amazing thing was collaborating with scientists from India and Bangladesh. And we've made this really strong, uh, cohesive family. Uh, and I really believe that we'll be in touch for the rest of our lives, which is a, an amazing experience. How long Incredible. were both of those trips when you headed out there? Two months each. So quite a, uh, it's the longest trip I've done for science, especially for field work. Um, so when you're getting on that plane with all of your science equipment, you're really praying you have everything. Because <laughs> if you've forgotten something, uh, it's going to be quite difficult to try and get it back. Um, we did have one case we were doing um, some uh, basically sediment grabbing, looking at how much sediment's on the bottom of the river. And we had this piece of equipment that's about a thousand pounds. So it's not cheap and it's quite bespoke. We can ordered one quickly out there and I'm not sure how it happened it happened very quickly we were in a river and had a bit of a flow going with it but it got stuck and we were traveling with the flow of the river um, but it got stuck in this boat what we found out was an old boat that had sunk um, but there was nothing to mark where this boat was and there's no way that we we're getting this sediment grabber back we were holding on uh, to the rope so tight that we were getting blisters and we had we had to let it go um and it was on only on the third location so we had 10 locations in total so we still had over half of the trip to go and this is just how wonderful Bangladesh and India is that we managed to lose this very bespoke sediment scooper grabber um and the guy that was uh running our boat he was like I'm gonna fix it I'm gonna figure out a way that we can get you on and within 12 hours we were drawing designs on um, old napkins, you know, just pens and just trying to do some loose measurements of how it worked and uh, the dimensions of it. And within that 12 hours, he came back from uh, just a, what would you call it? Like a metal, metal welders? Like a work, workshop type? It's a workshop with, it wasn't exactly the same, but it worked and it got the job done. And it only cost, I think, £100 for two. We got two just in case. And it's this metal structure. And where there used to be this synthetic plastic sack that would help capture the um, the sediment, we had a mosquito net and a potato bag. And it did the job. Uh, so it told me that even though we well, lost something into the, the Ganges that was quite bespoke, we were able to fix it uh, quite quickly. It really was it could have been bad but it was made to be a very big positive <laughs> i mean that's it obviously you've got the, the the expedition going on and the research but like as an experience to spend two lots of two months in in like through bangladesh and all the way up because you ended up sort of up by the himalayas right um mm. around the source of the ganges i mean putting the science aside for one second like what what was that experience like? Have you travelled sort of yourself for that kind of period of time before? Or? Uh, I haven't actually. My PhD was very lab-based. I didn't have any field work. Um, so when you put in your National Geographic grant, you have to put in the uh, Latin long of exactly where you're going to be. And I just put the Latin long of my lab because I wasn't going anywhere else. So I just needed some washing machines. <laughs> <laughs> but on, on this trip, it was it was just incredible. And... Um, I think I'm still kind of digesting it in my head now just the people that you meet and the strong connections you you make straight away and starting in Bangladesh where the river was so wide that you couldn't see the end and then finishing all the way up in the Himalayas in India in a place called Harsal where the river is almost so small you can jump over it and just seeing how the Ganges affects so many people's life and it, it really is the veins of India and Bangladesh it's like the life source and um, it's a very spiritual place as well where they believe that the Ganges flows from a god and we were incredibly incredibly lucky to go to Gamuk which is the glacial source of the Ganges and in the Hindu religion they believe that if you bathe in those waters that you're washed of all of your past sins 
and to share that experience with a lot of our Indian and Bangladeshi colleagues that got to bathe in the waters and just see how much it meant to them and their families saying that they would never get that opportunity again it was really special so I think that's a a key moment I'm always going to have in my head. Last week, we had a guest called Jem who works at Google as a program manager. And one thing that she said that stuck with me was, your network is your net worth. And it feels Mm. like you went to this event, this National Geographic event, you met some people there and struck up conversations, got to know them, maybe building a network without even realizing it. And that led to kind of this uh, really amazing opportunity to go on, on this trip. Do you think a network is important in your field specifically or... Are there other examples you've got where people that you've met and maybe didn't think anything of meeting, you just had some conversations, led to something more interesting? Yeah, I, I would say that network for me is everything. Um, I don't think I've ever really got a job from applying to it. It's always been someone I've known or word of mouth. So the first job I got was I was a cleaner in a retirement hotel And I got that job because someone I knew worked there and put in a good word for me. And then it was the same when I worked at Nando's. And I think the only thing I've really ever probably got into was just uni. And that's just through UGAS system. So I think, one, having a network for opportunities and just seeing where it can land you is great. But also just to surround yourself with like-minded people that are very nerdy about plastic pollution and you know looking at tiny plastic fibers um you know when we're in the pub we're probably just ridiculous just talking about it all just a little bit too much uh and that's why you know I'm coming to the end of the sea to source contract at the moment so I'm in that fresh space of trying to understand what I'm going to do next and I'm taking it easy I'm not too worried about it yet because I've still got a lot of research to do And I think I just need to take some time for myself to figure out what's next on the list to do, where I want to go, and potentially who I want to work with. Um, I think doing it that way and learning about your networks definitely taught me not to jump into things too fast and just give them a proper think and realise if it's the right direction for you, Um, which I never really considered myself to be when I was younger. Uh, So it's good to have that thinking space and that support network. Yeah, I think network came up in in our first sort of full interview episode with Caitlin as well. She sort of talked um, about the 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 networking that she'd done because I think in the same way she she had never really applied directly for anything. It had always been suggested that she might apply, or in in one case she was headhunted. Um, and she actually, since we did the the interview with her, she's um, kind of started her own venture as well, which probably leads to a question we often ask in the interviews is kind of the what Dean refers to as big talk which I think was the session that you had at Google wasn't it about basically the opposite of small talk um and one of those questions is if you could do anything what would you do oh (laughs) that's a question that my supervisor keeps asking me at the moment and my you know Heather as well my boss like what do you want to do and I, I feel like I'm in school again I'm just like what do you what I want to do and learning from kind of you know lessons of the past and what I really enjoy that's literally the answer just keep doing what I enjoy and I really enjoy doing research um I really enjoy the science communication aspect and getting people excited about science and realizing that it's everywhere whether that's microbeads in your bathroom or washing your clothes just in the kitchen where we keep the washing machine or even just getting a carrier bag. There's science to everything. And I got some crazy ideas that we're just kind of scouting out at the moment, uh, potentially looking at space debris and linking that to ocean debris. Um, But it's in its very early stages and it's just kind of forming legs. Um, But I potentially might have a a few exciting ideas along the on the line there. You're going to be going and sort of launching up on a SpaceX rocket <laughs> in the near future. I would never say no, but the probability is so minimal. But more than happy to research it. 
I would love you to go up into space in a SpaceX rocket just to tell Elon Musk that he did a bad thing sending a Tesla into space. <laughs> yeah. well. well, if you think about it, look at how many satellites there are and so many of them aren't working. And then how do you remove satellites from space? It's, it's just It just seems to me like history repeating itself. We've done it to the ocean where we've almost been treating it like a, a rubbish bin. But now in our own orbit, we're doing exactly the same. Uh, so there's definitely lessons to be learned and policies that should be in place. And I don't know if you've ever seen the film Wally, where yeah. there's just so many satellites, they have to like blast through all the satellites to get up into space. It's literally a prediction for the future. I don't know if I'm getting crazy. Maybe this is like a midlife crisis, but I think there's definitely some amazing research linking ocean debris and space debris and the lessons learned. Uh, I can I can confirm midlife crisis looks very different to, to solving the world's problems. Um, <laughs> it involves the proud owner of a new electric drum kit. Hey, Ben. Uh, uh, it's my son's birthday present. It doesn't matter that I play it all the time. Which you get to use, yeah. <laughs> Just linking into that. So you talked about why are we not learning from these mistakes and talking about policy. Because when, when you're first talking about microbeads in face wash i think that there's there's lots of examples of us designing products that solve the immediate problem like they do the thing you want them to do but there isn't a holistic look at where do the things that we're putting into these products come from and what happens afterwards so it i mean that obviously you've got to enforce policies in order to get companies to think that way do you know of any examples where that's starting to happen about that whole chain is being considered? I think it's becoming really, well, it's becoming more discussed in general. Um, I believe, in my personal opinion, a few years ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago, when people were making products, thinking of what's going to happen to it when it's disposed of or its environmental impact was probably quite small on the designing level but now I definitely feel like it's higher up it's much more of a a priority uh, and it's all about this thing that we call the, the circular economy when you make a product you have to decide how it's going to be disposed of properly what's going to happen to it what's its potential impacts because all of the a large majority of the negative impacts on plastic pollution is just because it hasn't been properly planned and prepared for at the design stage and as soon as we prepare for it then we're prepared for it we know how to deal with it um, and we have to just make sure that it's realistic so biodegradable compostable plastics I'm sure in the industrial composter they do break down but the way they're marketed is just saying that they're biodegradable compostable so I had a lot of friends you know including myself that would get these bags thinking hey this is the solution this is the new plastic this is going to solve plastic pollution but there's this dislink where, yes, they are biodegradable and compostable, but how do I get it to that industrial composter? Because otherwise I'm just putting it in the recycling bin or the waste bin. If they go into those two waste streams, they're not going to break down because they're not getting to that industrial composter. I think the nearest one to Plymouth is Birmingham. So am I meant to send it there in the post? Am I meant to drive it there? So it's just making sure that marketing, especially when environmentalism is quite sexy at the moment, it's quite a... People seem to pay more money for it to be environmental, but just making sure that it's black and white of how it works, how it should be disposed of, and that it's been just properly planned. It's interesting because I think people now individually are trying to make better choices, but there's a problem in the background, which are companies that essentially are more concerned with profit than the planet. And so they market a product kind of like with the microbeads, actually, as an example, where, hey, this thing looks really great and you should use it. It looks environmentally friendly and it has a badge on it that might make you believe that it is. But in this case, where actually you need an industrial composter to make a difference, it isn't. Um, and I think, you, you know, you have companies like Coke who are still contributing massively to the plastic problem globally when surely there are other ways to solve that problem. But how do you speak to these mega corporations who are more interested in profit than their corporate social responsibility or 
you know, when they're setting goals, are they being audacious enough saying that they're going to remove plastic from their supply chain in 50 years or whatever it might be? What what are your what do you think are some of the best ways to approach that? Uh, it's a big beast. Uh, I probably started my PhD, you know, saying plastic is evil. We just need to get rid of plastic. It's the devil. Then the oceans will be saved. But actually, plastic is great. It's a really great material. Um, right. The kind of what I do in talks is just look around the room. You know, I'm surrounded with my plastic surfboards. You know, talking to you through a plastic computer. I'm holding a plastic pen, wearing plastic clothes. Is it fantastic material? but it's how much we're making of it and how we dispose of it, which is the problem and that we're just not ready for this amazing material that's been built to last for life for eternity, but we're using it often for a couple of years, in some cases, a couple of seconds of a single use. So it's about changing our own mindset and our own way of thinking to realize that actually plastic is a material that can last for years and years and years. It's a wonder material and that's how we should use it but we're in a, a culture where we like things where it's new. You know, I like go, like going shopping. I like buying clothes. Um, so the way to address it is education. I, I really believe that education is the way that we can fix a lot of world problems and especially educating those in schools. They're the future politicians, the future parents, the future musicians, you know, you name it. They're the, the future people of society. So if we can teach them some key points to go forward of how to protect the planet or you know in other cases other things it will stand us in good stead for the future i mean they're also the innovators of the future as well so remind me actually of um you introduced me to uh, i don't know a friend or someone you know who makes sunglasses oh, out yeah. of reclaimed plastic fishing nets yeah so there's an example of taking what is seen as a waste product and actually making it profitable. So back to Dean's point, maybe there is profit to be made from the environment and doing the right thing in the environment too. But yeah, like, is that right in terms of the where the, the sunglasses come from? Yeah, so old fishing net, actually lots of old fishing net found in Cornwall. And then my boss, Heather, she uh, and her friends at ZSL have um, a charity, a company, that takes old fishing net and makes carpets because plastic is just so versatile. You can use it for a fishing net, then you can use it for a carpet, you can use it for sunglasses. Um, the only problem is there's so many different types of polymers with different additives out there that it could be quite difficult to make sure that you've got the right polymer, that you're not just mixing them up because that won't work. Think of like recycling. Um, so there's definitely a lot of solutions out there. It just needs a little bit more ironing out ironing out the creases to make it work so i i one of my side hustles is design sprints um i've suddenly now thought that i just need to go offering design sprints to every company saying right what do you consider to be your waste products and let's figure out how they can become an an additional profitable thing for you to deal with in a sustainable way oh 100 i'm sure someone's probably beating me to that (laughs) That, what you just said then makes me think of polos when polo started selling the holes <laughs> from from polos in like a separate packet. Did they? Um, yeah, yeah I don't know if they do it anymore, but they definitely did that for a while, right? Where you could buy a pot of the middle of polos, basically. Yeah. I'm not even convinced they were really the middle of polos. I think they were Surely just, that's not how they make them. <laughs> that's that's the marketing that I've fallen for. And I'm also thinking in my mind as well, I definitely have a pair of Adidas Pali trainers, uh, which have ocean plastic in them. And yeah, I feel yeah. like I'm just a sucker for the marketing because I'm sure that there are there's such a minute amount of ocean plastic in there that it's definitely worse. <laughs> like I'm definitely contributing more to the problem than I am uh, feeling like I'm doing good. That's the other big thing for me because I have some of the trainers as well. Um, and they're really expensive uh, yeah. trainers. Um, and it's just making sure that being environmental and plastic free isn't becoming a very expensive certain members of society. Yeah. Um, you know, part, it should be accessible to everyone and being plastic free and environmentally conscious isn't for the middle class, upper class. It should be for everyone. Um, and I feel like sometimes things are marketed in such a way that it really segregates society. 
And that needs to be stopped. So companies linking back onto them when they're planning products or looking at how to be environmental, they need to make sure that they're incorporating everyone rather than just making a lot of money from a select few. I think it feels like the junk food problem, right? It's much cheaper to uh, to buy food that isn't good for you than it is to go out and buy fresh fruit and veg. And mm. so immediately you shut out people from buying it who want it um, just purely because of the price. And it's, I guess it's a similar thing. It's much more easy to and cheaper to buy things that are single-use plastic uh, or to you know, go places that maybe are using single-use plastic or whatever it might be. Oh, yeah. I'm not made of money. And sometimes going to a, a farm shop or an organic box can be really expensive. And especially if you're away quite a lot, it just doesn't make any sense. And sometimes when I'm coming back from work, I'll just nip into, you know, a convenience store like Tesco's or Sainsbury's or co-op. And I'll just buy some dinner and I can't avoid, avoid it in plastic sometimes. Um so it's, there's a guilt that goes with it and it is convenient. And if you can avoid it, great. If you can't, don't feel guilty. You're still trying. Um, don't feel like you have to put yourself out there on your family and your life uh, to portray this image. It's all about what you can do to your own means. And I think that needs to be communicated a lot more. I guess a big part of that is the education as well that you talked about, right? Just educating yourself to, to be aware of the problem is the step in the right direction. Yeah, and you don't have to be, you don't have to spend crazy amounts of money to be environmental. So microbeads, um, all you have to do when they were there is just check the labels of microbeads or facial scrubs that contain microbeads. If it said uh, polyethylene, then you don't buy it. You go for natural alternatives instead. And that way you're stopping 3 million microbeads potentially entering the ocean just from that one decision in the supermarket. Mm. Only washing your clothes when you need to. Um, that stops thousands of fibres potentially entering the marine environment. Say no to a carrier bag, just remembering to bring your own. We're, we're all guilty of forgetting it. It's just trying to cement that idea in our head. So it's like I said before, you start small and then you can get a lot bigger. When you were going up the Ganges, you know, there was the team that kind of did the speaking to the local people about their habits. So there's a perception that India and Bangladesh are very resourceful countries, like you said, with the with the the bucket dragger. So got sediment grabber. That's sediment the one. Yeah. Um, but like, was there anything you kind of discovered from... When you, when you were talking to the local people about the plastic that made its way into the river, why that was, well, like, again, was that, was it single uses cheaper and easier for them? Were there some insights that have come out from that team's research? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. Um, and I'm really excited to see um, the papers and the research they're producing. Um, I got told that plastic only got introduced to India 30, 40 years ago, which... Yeah, plastic only got invented 90, 100 years ago. So it's crazy of just how oh, how much has been made in that, that time and how it's almost, you know, coming back to fight us from lapping on the beaches. Um, in India and Bangladesh, it can be tricky, especially with parts of society that don't have a lot of money. You're often living per day rather than per week or per month. So you're buying lots of plastic in single-use sachets, you know, tiny sachets for some shampoo or conditioner or for tobacco or for food, when we're incredibly lucky as a society that um, I can go and buy, you know, a shampoo and a bottle if I want to, or I can plan the food that I'm going to eat over the next few weeks. But in, in some cases, it's just not possible. And then on top of that, if you're next to the river and you have no waste management facility because there just hasn't been one built, they haven't got rubbish trucks uh, in a lot of places that come and collect the rubbish. Uh, they haven't got, you know, official landfill sites. So you'll either have plastic and waste building up in what could be unofficial landfill sites, which is quite unhygienic. It's not managed properly. So they can be just leaching out of plastic or... You can just put it straight in the river, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and to no, no one's fault, I'm sure if we were in the same scenario, we would do exactly the same. 
that they're having to put their waste in the river, the plastic sachets, you know, plastic food wrappers, because there's nowhere else to put it unless it gets burnt. And am I correct in understanding that part of the project it was also to look at some kind of manageable, sustainable solutions that would work in those places as well? Mm. So that's something that they're discussing. And there's some really exciting uh, projects, I hope, that are bubbling up, especially with our partner institutes that we're working with. And it's all about just starting small. So um, you drink a lot of chai out there. And if it's, you know, proper chai, I try to make some at home and it tastes absolutely disgusting. But out there, it just, it just tastes amazing. Uh, it's just so sweet. Um, but it normally comes in little clay cups. And depending where you go, it can come in these clay cups or in these plastic cups. And so a really easy fix is just, you know, going to a city that has mostly plastic cups and saying, here are these clay cups. Uh, they're still as cheap. Uh, here's how you make them. And that's a really quick fix for trying to get some plastic cups out of the system. And then in terms of sachets, when they're just getting all these uh, plastic sachets, what if there's an incentive that could, one, make a, f- a few people, uh, you know, have a livelihood, have a job? Um, so that's good for the economy and good for their families. And they could have reusable, uh, almost like containers. Imagine like they're going around on their backs and they can fill up people's pots or uh, reusable containers full of shampoo or conditioner exactly what we would have in a plastic free shop but it could be someone roaming around so just thinking outside the box and little ideas that will work for those communities and one thing I'm very conscious of is that that's not my you know my country I wasn't haven't grown up there I feel very privileged to have visited and met some incredible people but the best way of figuring out how to fix something is by asking the people themselves and asking the communities what will work uh, so there's been a lot of community discuss- discussion and hopefully in the next few months we'll get some of those projects on the ground. Basically, Ben, you're trying to, you're trying to discover the secrets before the secrets are, are released. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's also what I do with you, Dean, when, you know, in terms of Google announcements too. So <laughs> that's my little plan. I think it's so fascinating. Um, so as you know, I've kind of, um watched from afar and uh for some of the events that we've done we've based the the learning educators that I work with uh, when they're learning about new tools we like to put it in the theme and I have gone down the plastics in the ocean theme quite a lot over the last couple of years um, and obviously you've contributed to some of those projects with a little bit of expert information to kick us along um so uh, coming back sort of to what you said at the start about when you said it's a school and, you know, you weren't quite sure what you wanted to do. Um, I think it's really interesting, like, the pursuing your passion. And I think one thing that maybe Dean and I just certainly agree on is trying to expose children in schools to exploring those kind of passion areas, I, I think is, is really important. So um, hopefully, hopefully a few parents can pass on your interview on this podcast and various other places uh, and inspire the next generation of researchers who maybe at the moment are sitting at home just like you going, I'm not quite sure what I want to do. I don't think I'm a PhD student and who knows, making policy change within years. (laughs) And I think it's completely fine. You know, I used to probably worry, what am I going to do? You know, where am I going to go? What job am I going to have? But actually it's quite exciting not to know uh, and just, Taking every day as it comes, opportunities do arise. Just keep doing what you love and what you're passionate in, and then it doesn't seem like work. Imogen, it has been so inspiring to hear about your journey and your trip, especially in the Ganges. I can't wait for you to share the results of all the research from all the different teams that were there. And most of all, I'm looking forward to seeing you in space one day, <laughs> uh, taking some of those learnings and figuring out how to remove all the trash from the sky. And I guess maybe there'll be the similar thing, right? You mentioned satellites earlier. Satellites can be really helpful, but there's just a bunch out there that are doing nothing in the same way that plastic can be really helpful, but there's lots of it in the ocean right now. Um, so thanks very much. Is there anything, Is maybe let's end by asking, is there kind of one piece of advice that you would give to people now about pursuing a career, perhaps they feel like they haven't got the qualifications to do something they feel really passionate about, or they're in a similar position 
where they don't know what they want to do. You kind of mentioned there, just kind of take it day by day. Is there any last piece of advice you want to share before we finish up? Uh, it's a good question. I'd say take it day by day. You know, Rome wasn't built overnight. Um, keep doing what you love because then it doesn't seem like work. You know, even just for me, it started with beach cleans and surfing, doing a little bit more reading, chatting to the right people. And then I realized a snowball effect. Uh, I even look back now and think, oh, my goodness, I can't believe, you know, I, I managed to get into a career that I really love. Um, and just not to worry about it. A cup of tea fixes everything as well. A very dark one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on my physics experiment. <laughs> awesome. Imogen, yeah. thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Keep in touch. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.